0: I sort of think back to my career and and realise how lucky I am now to have had the mentors that I did way back when I first sort of started playing club cricket in Perth. If that's something that I can give back to a young player that wants to make it in the game then that's probably the least I can do. One of the things players could really do to fast track their learning as a player and understanding their own game and their opposition's game is to maybe do the role part time during the winter or something like that because it it actually makes you more aware of what you're actually trying to do on the field when you're under pressure. Ultimately, life's short and you can't do what you're doing if you're not enjoying it. Otherwise, it's gonna become a chore and and you're probably not gonna get out of bed in the morning to do it. So I know that I love what I do because I keep doing it.
1: Optimize performance through adapting your physical, psychological and emotional state. Welcome to the 100th episode of the Performance Intelligence Podcast. 100 episodes is a significant milestone for us. And I first wanted to thank the wonderful team that does such a great job behind the scenes to make everything happen, including, of course, the wizard. Mate, thank you. You're here for every episode. You listen to the interviews. You're in the post-recording booth. You do the social media. You spend a significant part of your job working on this. Big thumbs up to Shannon, constantly keeping me on my toes, Shannon, changing, chopping, coming up with new ideas. I love that you always bring that lens to how can we improve. Luba, you are the world's best podcast researcher. You come up with information that even our guests say, where did you get this? And Angeline, you help us amplify this across social media and also taking some of the podcast content and putting that onto digital resources for our corporate program. So to the team, huge thumbs up from me and a big thank you to you, the listener, because without listeners, there is no podcast. Today's episode, the 100th, I am joined by Simon Kadich, former captain for both the New South Wales and Derbyshire cricket teams. Simon also played for Lancashire, Western Australia, the Perth Scorchers and Kings XI Punjab in the IPL. Simon played 56 test matches for Australia with a batting average of 45 and best bowling figures of six for 65. Not bad on your stats, Caddo. I should know this because I was your fitness trainer for a number of years at New South Wales Cricket. Upon retiring as a first class cricketer, Caddo worked as football operations manager for the GWS Giants. He jumped back into the global world of cricket a few years later as head coach of Royal Challengers Bangalore in the IPL head coach of Manchester's 100 team, and he was recently appointed chief coach of Mumbai Indians Cape Town in the South African 2020 league. Simon is a regular cricket commentator for Channel 7. He's a former competitor on Celebrity Master Chef, and he cooks a mean barbecue. And on weekends, he can be found umpiring his children's junior cricket games on Sydney's Lower North
0: Shore. Simon Kadich, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. That's a big intro, isn't it? It is. Uh, it seems like a long time ago that I actually played cricket. Given that uh, busy now with family life and and work outside of well, not just in cricket, but also having had that time at the Giants for a couple of years when I finished playing, uh, it's been nice to to have a different, uh, I guess, outlook on life having gone and done that. I'm going to dig into
1: that in a little bit. But first, uh, last time I saw you, you sledged me and I didn't even realise it was you. I've got him at my feet, the dog at the moment. You might hear him panting. So you were umpiring a game with your son. My son was playing. I I had no idea. So we took the dog along. I'm sitting there watching this game of kids cricket and just there's this passionate umpire. I had no idea who he was. The dog, Toby, must have heard Archie's voice, ran on the field. And then all the kids are going, ah, Archie's batting. And he looked at me mortified and went, Dad, take control of the dog. And you sledge me. And I didn't realize it was you under the hat. You said, mate, get your dog. And I can't say exactly what you said. But I was <laughs> mortified that this kid's umpire sledged me. Later that day, I get a text message it's from you. Like, uh, mate, it was me. And I went, oh, I had no idea.
0: Well, the thing about that was that I was just trying to do my job and dogs have got to stay off the cricket pitch. Exactly. Um, but when it comes to, to you know coaching the kids cricket now, that's probably one of the joys I get out of being able to give back to the game, um, seeing the kids get that enjoyment on a Saturday morning. And uh, I just can't believe that you couldn't see me from probably 50 metres away. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still telling everyone I've got 20, 20 eyesight, maybe I...
1: Maybe I do need it checked. That says a lot about you and your love of the game, but also just the way you give back. This is not the first time I've heard of you helping out kids. So my best mate from school, Mario, you know this story? He rocked up at the local cricket nets a couple of years ago. You're there giving
0: throwdowns to some young kid as well because their parent asked you to give them help. How often do you do that? Well, with my son's team, I do it regularly. I try and coach the kids every Friday afternoon with a couple of the other dads close to where we live. Uh, and i find that you know it's nice to be able to give some of the stuff that i've learnt back to the kids and see them just Teach them the basics, really, because they're at that age now where they're just learning about the game for the first time, uh, and you can see that passion with which they play. And then every now and then, a few mates of mine that have got older kids, and one in particular is making his way. Played recently for New South Wales under 19s, and that was the one that you were alluding to at the Nets. He wanted me to have a look at him uh, a couple of years ago, and bumped into your mate Mario at the Nets at North Sydney Oval. So. I sort of think back to my career and and realise how lucky I am now to have had the mentors that I did way back when I first sort of started playing club cricket in Perth at sort of 15 16 years of age and and so now I think if that's something that I can give back to a young player that wants to make it in the game then that's probably the least I can do and you know whether they make it or not that's beside the point to me it's about trying to impart some of that knowledge that I know I've got from 20 years of experience of playing and, and learnt not just from myself but also some of the great players I got to play with and against so I get a lot of enjoyment out of doing that and and hopefully seeing a a young kid uh, learn something about the game that they love playing. I love hearing that
1: uh, because you're very respectful of the, the Giants whose shoulders you stood on as you grew up and we'll talk about your role models as well today. The only thing I get asked is to do some run-throughs and some sprint drills. <laughs> so they know my track and field background. So with Michaela's netball and, and with some of Archie's soccer, like I've done some warm-ups, but you know I don't get kids
0: dragging me down to the nets. Do you ever get sick of that? No, but I think what we'll probably talk to, we'll uh, talk about soon, is that that's plays an important role as well. So it's not just about the cricket side of things and the technical aspects to playing the game, but the physical side and mental side mm-hmm. have a big role to play. So don't undersell yourself in regards to that uh, aspect of the game because in cricket it is vitally important to have that side as well. And and that's something that I'm really mindful of with my boys, trying to teach them and get them into good habits now mm-hmm. as well when it comes to you know looking after themselves physically because it is a different generation or, or time that they're growing up uh, in this world now with all the technology available and, and I guess the the options there compared to what it was like when we were growing up as kids. My, my kids say that to me
1: and I'm sure your boys as well. Dad, what was it like in the olden days? Um, you know, we didn't have technology, we didn't have all the distractions we have, so I, I, I – believe as well and totally agree sport is a vehicle not just about fitness but it's about resilience it's about connection it's about community so so much we get through sport so let's go back when you were a little kid a nine or ten year old simon cadditch in perth your dad was a local detective Uh, you come from a close family i've had pretty good barbecues at your house so i know you put on a good croatian
0: spread what were you like as a nine or a ten year old Pretty normal, I think. I uh, just loved – we grew up on some property, in about 12 acres out in the Swan Valley in, in uh, Western Australia, and, and there was plenty of space. So I was always out in the paddocks kicking a footy. I probably had a footy in my hands more than I did a cricket bat. But also, growing up, I loved cricket that much that I used to say to mum and dad when I was probably four and five years of age that I wanted to play cricket for Australia. So it's amazing how yeah. that sort of passion probably led me to do what I did, and um, I never – thought that that would ever eventuate. But obviously, as a kid, you've got to have dreams. But so I was pretty normal. You never thought that would eventuate. So when when did you believe? So did you, you
1: handed your baggy green in the early 2000s. Rewind from that. When did you actually think, I can do this? Because most kids want to be an astronaut or you know go to the moon or a bus driver or something
0: you know, really exciting. When did you start to believe, hey, I can do this? Well, I think the belief was sort of put upon me by one of my coaches at my club team, Midland Guildford, when I was about 16 years of age and he pulled me aside I was still at school at the time but I got picked to play first grade cricket uh, for Midland Guildford and, and there were already probably three or four state players there guys like Tom Moody, Joe Angel, Brendan Julian, Tim Zura so they'd already sort of made their path and played for Australia as well so when the coach that pulled me aside Kevin Gartrell who'd mentored a lot of them previously he sort of indicated that he thought I was good enough to play state cricket and potentially play for Australia and and up until that point in time I just didn't think you know anything other than oh, I just want to try and play school cricket and maybe a bit of club cricket I didn't know how good I could be so when he said that having had that experience with the others I started to think oh well, maybe you know if I do the work I might be good enough but I think it probably didn't really dawn on me until I played for WA and did really well in my first couple of seasons and that's when I realized geez, I'm close here because I'm the the next rung down from the Australian team. And then it was in 1999 that I got picked for my first Australian tour to go to Sri Lanka where it dawned on me that, hang on, I'm now really I'm here. close here. Yeah. I'm with all these guys walking down to breakfast, uh, you know, with Shane Warne and the War Brothers and McGrath and, and all these guys, legends of Australian cricket who I'd been watching over the past four, four or five years on TV growing up. So that's when it dawned on me that maybe, you know, I could – potentially be able to play for Australia. Is that
1: surreal? Because you've you've got some of those legends of the game who you probably had on your bedroom wall Um, and now you're in the dressing room with them. Now you're having breakfast, you're on the team bus. Now you're in the nets with
0: them. Did you pinch yourself? It was. It was a very surreal experience and then eventually I realised they were just normal guys and I think that's the beauty of having been in that environment that we've all come from a similar background where we grew up playing the game we loved and then happened to play in an era where Obviously, there was a lot of great players. So to be a part of that era, um, I look back on very fondly and and think, you know, I'm very blessed to have played in that era of Australian cricket. And whilst I didn't play as much with those guys as they all did together, and and I was on the fringes at times, to have been teammates with them and played in some of the iconic series over those years in the sort of late 90s and mid-2000s. Mate, you did all right. You played Test cricket for 10 years, which we'll get to. I often get a
1: parent I will say to me, Kat, hey, I've, my daughter and my son is a great AFL player. She's a great cricketer or a really good hurdler. Can you sit down and have a chat with my child and talk to them about what they need to do to go to the Olympics to play for the Diamonds or whatever it may be? Uh, I imagine you get a fair bit of that. What do you say to a parent who has got a child or what do you say to a developing
0: teenager who wants to go to the next level? Well, I think the the main message for me is to to make sure that they're loving what they do because I know it was my passion. It wasn't thrust on me by anyone else. It wasn't forced. I mean, there was no one in my family background that really played cricket or, or got to a high level of, of any sort of sport given that my grandparents migrated from Yugoslavia and there wasn't that background in no cricket. No cricket in Yugoslavia? Though. No. Yeah. So in terms of I knew it was because I wanted to do it. So I think that's the most important thing that – you know, as a parent now, I'm really mindful that I don't put that pressure on on my sons, even though I love the game. I know they love playing it, but I know it's because it's it's driven by them rather than me saying, You gotta do this, you gotta do that. And I think that's really important. And then the messaging for me is to have that balance because one thing that I look back on now and, and I'm really glad that I did was I studied after I finished school. And I saw other mates that didn't do that and then they got into the professional environment of cricket and it's very cutthroat. And back then it was semi professional. So there wasn't the money in the game that there is now. You know, we used to train ten months of the year and unless you got picked for a game, you didn't earn a cent. So I think that's part of the problem now when we talk about player burnout or mental health. I personally I actually
1: think a lot of the the, the mental health challenges we're branding now, I actually think it's burnout. That you've got these young players who are playing state cricket. They're playing 2020 Big Bash, they might get an IPL contract. They might go over and play county. They just need
0: to have some time off. There's no balance. I completely agree, and I think I've been having this chat over the last few years with the players' association, and and just seeing the changes from when we started in the mid '90s, and seeing if there's anything that stands out between then and now. And it's always hard to compare eras because the game is so different now, and T20s evolved. There's all these different leagues that the players, you know, want to be involved in, and because of the money involved, and you can't blame them for that and I don't know how old I would have been able to make those decisions you know as a young player what to play and what not to play in because it's it is a tough decision for them now but I agree I think the burnout factor is is huge but I also think the environment that is is such at state cricket now is so different to what it was in the mid-90s where guys are in at seven or eight in the morning and they stay there all day much like the AFL system Whereas we had a system where you train twice a week with your club team. You might only train twice a week after work or after study you know, from 5 p.m. onwards with your mates at the WACA. And then the rest of the time, you had to be accountable for your own time in terms of studying or working or whatever it was. So you actually have an environment where you're more self-sufficient, whereas now everything's sort of done for the players. And I just wonder whether that's taking away from there Um, skills of being able to, you know, get better at decision making and making good decisions for themselves, not only with their cricket, but also with their lifestyle, because ultimately they've got to grow up and learn how to fend for themselves on and off the field. And if that's always being done for you, you're never going to probably learn, you know, what works for you if someone else is making those decisions for you. I totally agree. The risk of, what are those two guys
1: in the Muppets, Waldorf and Grimsey, (laughs) (laughs) sitting up there there, oh, there's never like this when we were a young guy. I think they're there way too long they're filling in time but it's you know life is extreme sports high train hard get stressed you know high intensity interval training stretch your brain chill out relax switch off but it seems like they're in this static linearity now in your portfolio career with commentating radio and also tv you have some other interest as well some investments if you were to pick up one other thing in your portfolio career and they said okay go run a cricket association what would you
0: change well the one thing I think if I was involved coaching in uh, in Australia would be to look at how we went about things back in the mid 90s because I think in terms of development programs you know a lot of guys developed their game doing that sort of system that I mentioned before they stayed you know with their club mates and I think the, the beauty about that is if you're training with guys that aren't playing the game full time you're actually staying grounded and I think it would help the mental health that space because you've actually got a lot of perspective in life when you rather than being in this cocoon where you've got all the same like minded athletes thinking the same or talking about the same things when you I guess associate yourself with people that are, are doing normal day to day jobs you certainly stay grounded And the game of cricket you have to stay grounded because one day you can be scoring 100 the next day first ball duck and I think as a coach in Australia, I'd be inclined to go back to what it was like to provide some perspective to these young guys because at 18 or 19 years of age, these young kids are nowhere near the finished product. They've got a long journey ahead of them. But if they believe that they're there and ready to go at that that stage of their careers, then I I think they're kidding themselves and it's a long journey. So rather than think that they're right there at that point in time, I'd be encouraging them to obviously go out into the real world and maybe study or do some part-time work to give them some perspective to realize how good they've got it with their opportunity as a rookie or, or as a state contracted player so that, You know, when things get tough in cricket, there's some balance there for them to make sure that they stay even rather than being up and down over the emotion of a performance because everything's riding on it. And that's what's happening at the moment. Everything, it's almost like all their eggs are in one basket. And having been through that as a young player where I didn't have all my eggs in one basket, having the study behind me, I know I was able to relax and enjoy my career and play it for the right reasons. And I, and I, don't think it's as easy as that for the young players now. And I I think they've got some big challenges because of the way the environment is. It's great that they get well looked after financially now. And I'm, I'm certainly an advocate for that because you need to have a little bit of that stress taken away. To be able to support yourself as an eighteen or nineteen-year-old moving out of home, but at the same time, it is creating problems in the system we're seeing at the moment.
1: And I think that's one of the reasons you could ride some of the ups and downs you had in your career. A couple of injuries, or you you were picked in you
0: know, Sri Lanka, and then you had glandular fever, so you were wiped out for yeah, a while after so that. Before my first tour, in I think it was '99, in that was in August. I got glandular fever at the end of that season in sort of April and then i had chickenpox on my first tour to sri lanka so two big viruses within you know 3 or 4 months of each other and that really knocked me around and and that's probably when i learned a lot about my health being the main priority because physically i struggled to play and train like i had been And I was only young at the time. I think I was still, you know, 24 years of age. So I should have been in peak physical condition, but it knocked me around that much that I ended up sort of having bits and pieces of that 99, 2000 summer off. And it took me nearly probably six to 12 months to get my full strength back. Um, I went to see a naturopath to try and see if my diet needed to change. It would have been like a fitness
1: trainer back I remember when we first met, when you moved to New South Wales, Stumper, God love him, Steve Rixon used to say, Maisie Misser, you know, you come out in the off season, then October, I won't say exactly, you know, <laughs> F off, it's cricket. It slowly filtered in that well, now it's a big part of the game. Psychology is becoming a bigger part, it needs to be more of a part. But going and seeing a naturopath back then, like your teammates at WA would have thought you were crazy.
0: Yeah, no, exactly. And there was a lot of that perception around glandular fever. One of the other boys had had chronic fatigue and he'd struggled with that for a period of time. And I think there was always this suspicion that it was a mental problem, but I know full well having lived through it that it was physical because when you have glandular fever, you know the the readings that the blood tests you have with your liver and all that sort of stuff Highlight that you've got something physical wrong with you. So, but you bounce back from that. Oh, do you smell that? <laughs> oh, is that the dog?
1: <laughs> oh, that's disgusting. Oh, that's right. You don't smell. <laughs> uh, I think the dog did actually drop one. But uh, <laughs> is it called an anosmia? Anosmia? Uh, yeah, asnomia, I think so. Okay. So we, we could you smell at a young age, um, or was that from the glandular fever?
0: No, no, from as far back as I can remember, I couldn't oh, I smell. It must have been the glandular. No, fever. no. So, but but yeah, in terms of having that and having the um, uh, chickenpox, I, I realised that I've got to look after myself physically to be able to at play at a higher level. So, from that period on, I certainly. Um, did probably change my lifestyle a fair bit. I had to be careful with alcohol because there was a period of time there where I couldn't even touch it just because of the glandular fever and physically didn't feel like drinking. And the effect it had so that was something that in a culture like cricket where it was a big part of our game big part of the game, yeah. that did change over a period of time but then eventually when i got my full sort of fitness back that i got back to normal but i, I guess i've learned a lot more about diet and, and training and I, I reckon i learned a lot more about my body and knowing when to back off with training because i was always a big trainer and loved to to do as much as i could physically but there were periods where I did get run down and worn out where I realized I had to back off and listen to my body. And that's as I got more experienced, I got better at knowing that. I did some research on you asking some of our mutual friends
1: I went for a bike ride with Maile, Greg Maile, the uh, all-time leading grade run scorer. I don't think he'll ever get overtaken in uh, New South Wales or in Sydney. And Farhat, you know, the fingers, Farhart, the world's best physio. This is what they both said. Uh, Maile said, Kat was ruthless. When he got a start, he refused to let up. He broke things down into achievable steps. When he batted, he was always going to get the scoreboard to 40, 50, 60. A, a joy to bat with him, learnt so much. Super, 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 super competitive. <laughs> <laughs> what have you got to say about that? And, and you played a fair bit of cricket with Maley?
0: Yeah, look, I loved playing with uh, with junk. I think the thing that, that stands out there, and, and I know my greatest strength as a player was my competitiveness. I loved the contest. And whilst I probably didn't have the same level of natural talent, and, and I know I had some talent, but I, maybe not quite the same level as some other guys in the Australian team through that era, um, what I probably had was that love of the contest and that's probably what Miley's alluding to there that was my strength and I certainly uh, made the most of it and then uh, Farhad, great man has just finished uh, a four
1: and a half year tenure with the Indian cricket team Farhad said in every match you played as soon as you crossed the line the white line whether it was for Randwick New South Wales or Australia you were always going to contest 100% could even be uh, questioned whether you had white line fever <laughs> <laughs> there's no question about that I had it <laughs> <laughs> we might talk about a couple of incidents as we sort of warm in the interview as well. Paddy said, you, Simon, didn't have an off switch when playing cricket, but was able to switch off outside of cricket. Really interesting, you said before, some of those life experiences, studying accounting. Well, you don't have many cricketers studying accounting back in the late 90s. An innovative player, learned from his mistakes and you weren't scared to look for a better way to do things. But what really stood Simon apart and what other people can learn from him, this is Paddy, you always showed respect for the game of cricket, for the teams you played, Played for and the people you played with, your humility, your consistency, and the value you placed upon family and relationships away from cricket, and your willingness to stand up for what you believe was right. And I said to Patty, anything uh, we could tell people that they may not know? And he said, the smell. <laughs> and and I, <laughs> Patty and I were reminiscing. There was one time we were on a bus and um, Dougie Bollinger, I think had had a curry the night before. <laughs> you remember this? It cleaned the bus out. Everyone's like, oh! <laughs> and you're just sitting there and go, yep,
0: cat definitely doesn't smell. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's the beauty of it, having shared a dressing room with some of these characters for the best part of 20 years. It was a strength of mine not be a, to be able Absolutely. to smell. Absolutely, especially someone like Dougie. But look, there, there's some pretty lovely words from Patty and from Miley yeah. So- look- I'm certainly very flattered by that, and I guess in terms of what Paddy's um, said about me, there, you know, I love the fact w- with what he said uh, means a huge amount because we did have a lot of time together, not only working for New South Wales but also at Hampshire and County Cricket. So we spent a lot of time over the years, and he's obviously, you know, when it comes to physios, there was none better in cricket, and the fact that he's just finished his tenure at at India, I think it speaks volumes of of the level of of a physio that he's at. But not only that, he he was part psychologist part mentor because, you know, having the experience he's had over cricket dressing room for so long. Um, you know, i he's say a full th- psychologist. Yeah. Correct.
1: And uh, right. player manager, liaison officer, community manager. Uh, so a lot of things that, you know, a, a good physio, a good coach brings other than just helping you bowl, bat and catch.
0: Yeah, and, and uh, yeah, it means a lot to hear all those things. And I think, you know, from a, a playing point of view, I've got no doubt I had white line fever. But what he did say that was correct was that I knew I was really intense on the field but I also feel like I'm a really relaxed, laid-back character off the field. Mm. And I think that was the beauty of having, I guess, the grounding with study and with, I guess, interests away from the game so that it wasn't just cricket, cricket, cricket all the time because otherwise you do burn yourself out thinking about it all the time and and you do have to have outside interests to take your mind off it. Otherwise, it gets all-consuming because – When you do want to reach the top level, you do have to have that passion for it and and think about how you're going to get better. So it can occupy your mind for large periods of time away from the game when you can, I guess, break it down into little subsections and compartments. And I think Steve Wall was a great um advocate Did you learn for that, that off Steve? to compartmentalize things. And I think that's what I got really good at in terms of knowing how to uh, compartmentalize the day in terms of being a batsman for a period of time, being a captain for a period of time, being a bowler for a period of time, being a teammate, being a mate, being with family, being with mates. So that's that's where as a cricketer you've got to be able to, you know, have that ability to I guess, work across a variety of different people and different um, ways of thinking to be able to get the best out of yourself, but also those around you. and That's probably a byproduct of of being a leader as well, and that's something I learned over time from some great leaders and then getting to do it myself. So what did you do to switch off when you are playing? I
1: know you, you cook, I've had numerous dinner parties at your house and uh, I think I invited you over one time and just felt embarrassed. <laughs> but you made me up my cooking game, so you cook. What else
0: do you do? Yeah, that was a big part of my relaxation. I love eating. Cooking was, for me, really relaxing. You are on
1: TV cooking as well,
0: right? Yes. I got uh, asked to go on Celebrity MasterChef in 2009 after the um, Ashes series and I never thought I'd do something like that, but I love cooking that much so I thought, why not? Why not do something and take myself out of my comfort zone? Actually, I feel- Stuart
1: Clark I, actually randomly rang me this morning and he said, what are you doing today? I said, I'm doing a podcast with Cato." Anything to add? And, and Sarfraz said, yeah, when is he going to be on Dancing with the Stars?
0: <laughs> no chance because I can't dance. But thankfully, I love cooking. And I won't say I'm a great cook, but I love learning about it. And I thought, what an opportunity. So I went on it and, and really enjoyed it. And I guess the funniest thing about it from my point of view was that you know, there was a stage there when I got back from the Ashes in 2009. i just filmed the show and I was at the checkout at the local Woolworths and, and these two 16-year-old boys came up to me and I was expecting them to to want to start talking cricket because they'd probably seen me playing Test for Australia that summer. But the question they asked me was, they came up and said, oh, how do you cook spatchcock? I, <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't help but laugh because I thought, oh, they've obviously been watching uh, Celebrity masks Great <laughs> that
1: two 16-year-old boys are wanting to get in the kitchen yeah. and cook,
0: yeah but that's probably that was probably one of my biggest outlets i love playing golf with the boys we used to play a fair bit for new south wales we'd go out to the coast i think it- one stage there, and the coach Matthew Mott led the charge, and, and even Paddy, who you mentioned before, he loved getting having a hit. So we used to I do never that. got a fair invited bit. to play golf. I think. I wonder uh, why. <laughs> you, you saw me at Baruca,
1: and when Mark Wall said I was the only person that could fuck up a game of golf. Remember, <laughs> remember we did speed golf at our, our off season clinic, and, and Junior just said, "Mate, no one ever ever get Maisie on the golf course again." I tried, like I tried to bring my strengths to the golf course, but yeah, I think I only met
0: you in the clubhouse. Well, that's one of those things that uh, you got to take the good with the bad when it comes to your teammates judging you, Maisie. So you <laughs> took it on the chin and got on with things. But, yeah, all those things that most of us like doing. I love watching AFL. That was always a passion of mine through the winter. Yeah, golf. But then I guess the thing is, yeah, trying to catch up with family and friends because cricket's the one thing that, you know, in terms of all the sports, it takes you away a lot. So that's one area where trying to always make have, have time for for friends and and I guess part of that was cooking, being able to have people around. And when you're on the road a lot, you eat out and and I think – cooking probably was a byproduct of being on the road so much. I just love to be at home and, and um, have people around and do that. Did you so. have a, ever have a cook-off with Hados? The big fella thought he was pretty good in the kitchen. He even had a
1: show on SBS, didn't he? Cooking he did. with Matthew Hayden. So did you ever get in there and say, all right, we're going to have
0: a a master chef cricket cook-off? We didn't. And I think what happened there was Hados, I think on one of the tours in India, he brought his bread maker because he wasn't happy with the quality of the bread that we were getting served at the hotels there. That sounds like him. But he only had a very select group. So it was it was uh, Justin Langer, himself, Damien Martin and maybe Ricky Ponting. So it was a very select group to break into. But from all reports, yeah, he used to, he brought this bread maker with him. I think he might have brought a little gas burner but what I do know is that Hados used to love going down to the, to the chefs at the hotels and learning different things about making curries and stuff like that. And that's one thing I took off him was that since my trips now to India for the IPL, if I've been in Kolkata or wherever it is, and I get an opportunity to try and learn how to, to cook some of the local curries, I'll get a chance to go down and visit the kitchen and do that. So it's There's good a
1: thread that is running through our discussion that I, I didn't even think about when I did my preparation. You have what's called appreciative inquiry or this constant learning, like you want to learn different things. You don't just get to a stage and then check out. And we go back to what you just said before. I've never heard a player talk about the game the way you did, that you had your role as a batter, your role as a bowler, your role as a fielder, as a teammate, as a mate is is that what's led you to doing what you're doing now so well compartmentalizing uh, do you have an ability have you thought about this where you can go there's my family with Georgie and the boys uh, there's what I'm doing in the community there's what I'm doing as, as a coach of an IPL franchise huge pressure that's what I do on channel 7 it, it, do you
0: think like that i must do subconsciously because i think the roles that i'm doing now are quite varied but they also overlap a little bit and i think the beauty about them is that I guess the learnings from each, from playing to coaching, but even even what I did at the Giants, and I never thought I would probably leave the Giants because when I did it and, and I finished playing, I finished playing in the BBL final, BBL 3 on the Friday night in Perth, and it was the perfect way to finish. We won the title, and on the Monday morning I started work at the Giants in this completely different environment, and – what I loved about working there was working with young athletes that were making their way, much like I'd done 20 years earlier, setting up a leadership program with our sports psych. And I learned probably more doing that role than I was able probably to pass on to these young athletes. But So you, you learned more, you think you learned I more think from so. them than they learned from you. I, I've said that to them and joked about it. And to this day I still catch up with a number of them, even though I'm not there anymore. And what I loved about being at the club was that Footy clubs are huge and you can get lost in the place. But when it's a new club that's obviously striving for for space in a crammed Sydney sporting market, the club were very inclusive for the media coming in, the community coming in. And I guess it made it hard to leave the Giants, but I know I did it for the right reasons because the role was magnificent. I was learning about the footy operations manager role. I was sitting in on list management meetings, footy subcommittee meetings, and all this was great learning for me personally. But unfortunately, at the end of my first year is when Phil Hughes passed away and it it rocked me really hard seeing his family go through what they went through. And then from a personal point of view, my sister-in-law and my brother-in-law lost their little one to a brain uh, tumor. She was less than two. And when it all happened, it just hit me really hard having two young boys and we'd only just had our youngest, Leo, in August of that year, 2014, when it happened, and it made me think – look, I want to see my boys more and this job is brilliant and I love working with these young athletes but I'm only seeing my boys for an hour in the morning an hour at night and that's probably common for most people in the workforce. I think a lot of execs that I work with,
1: they, they don't even
0: do that. And that's where I thought, you know, I'm, I'm very lucky and privileged to be in a position where, you know, cricket's been very kind to us financially and from, a, I guess, a, a professional point of view that after cricket I was able to pick and choose what I wanted to do and it was a tough conversation with the Giants given the opportunity they gave to me but they totally understood why I I had to leave because of the family scenario and what we'd been through seeing our our niece pass away so quickly and as a result of that you know the opportunities then started to come in cricket and I, I believe that it was fate that it happened for a reason unfortunately it took that to make me realize maybe I had to change tack and you know, then to get the opportunity coaching cricket and then to work in the media, it's almost like it was meant to be. But unfortunately, it was on the back of these, you know, horrendous experiences with Phil and then with my niece that it led to that or sort of took that for it to happen. But I look back on those last four years now that I've been coaching and, and being in the media and I've loved the experience. It's been a different challenge, but it's also provided me with a great opportunity to spend a lot of time with my boys doing stuff at school, um, helping out with reading groups, coaching the kids I see in footy, dropping the kids off. cricket. Like
1: once a week, I'm driving down a Northbridge and you're, you're dropping kids off, I'm dropping kids off, and hey, how are you? So you, you are, you're very hands-on. So you've been able to really balance. When, when you're in IPL, you're away you know, for a couple of months, but then when you're here, you're very hands-on.
0: Yeah, and I think it, it took that experience... And it's so extreme to to see the loss of a, a child or a couple of of young people to realize that life's precious and life's short. And that made me realize, you know, I've got an opportunity to change this. And as much as I didn't want to leave the Giants and, and it was a tough call to make, they respected that for the reasons that I did it. And I'm fortunate now with what I do that, yes, I work hard for short periods of time, but when I'm home, I'm home and I'm present And the beauty is, with young kids, we all see it, it 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 happens so quickly, they grow up so quickly that you can't get that time back. And so I've been very blessed in the last four years to have that time with the boys. And before I know it, they'll be at high school and they'll be a way off on their own little journey. So, yeah, coaching and being in in the commentary over the last four years has taught me a lot. But all the roles are interrelated, but it's also tied into a nice balance with the family life as well. But
1: you're having that – like with Philip Hughes, that, you know, all of us that had worked with who you played, you opened with Hughes multiple times. Sometimes those life events really do make you step back and reflect, don't they? So that obviously those two events had a big impact on you to get balance yeah. and to really question you know, what's important to you.
0: Yeah, it had a huge impact because I think all of us that played the game – questioned that could have been any number of us and it was such a freak accident that you know we could not believe this is possible and then it obviously saw the grief that his, his family went through and um, the trauma it caused that you know that could have been any one of us and, and to think that unfortunately it took that for us all to wake up and realize you know all the times we fielded in close without a helmet on or face short pitch bowling which is you know part of the game but we just never thought it would get to that point, and, and unfortunately, it took a tragedy like that for a lot of us to realize this is how precious life is and, and how tough the game of cricket is, particularly as a batsman.
1: Mm. Were you ever scared like when you're out facing a fight, like your Brett Lee, uh, the Wacker, you know, 160 kilometers an hour giving your chin
0: music? You weren't scared, or did you just get in the slot, in the zone, and you were ready? I, I know for a fact if I'd been scared, I would never have been able to do what I did, because Playing in the era that it did against some of the the quickest of all time, whether it's Brett Lee, who was a mate of mine and probably took it easy on me in the nets. We were went to the academy together, and, and he always looked after me. But Shahab Akhtar, all these guys that were hitting, you know, one hundred and fifty plus, and it was game on when you're batting at the top of the order against a new ball. So I think if I'd been scared, and I know I wasn't, because I and the hard thing is. People will never know that because they don't know what you're feeling. But I always felt comfortable because I grew up at the WACA where it was quick and bouncy. You couldn't have played on a quicker wicket than there. We trained after, you know, well, I want to say after work, after study at sort of five pm. There were shadows. You don't get any bigger challenge than facing all these young quicks trying to impress the captain at five thirty at night with shadows coming across the wicket. So. I know I was well-equipped for it and I felt like I had the game to face that. So yeah, when it comes comes to being hit, I got hit plenty of times in cricket and just knew that that was part of part of the role and, and yeah, tried to Roll absorb on.
1: it. Back to AFL, what what did you learn from AFL? So what was different about the AFL structure and what have you taken to coaching? And, and what do you think that cricket can learn from AFL and what can AFL learn from cricket?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. I, I learn a lot in the fact that the professionalism and the attention to detail – of not only uh, the players but also the coaches is second to none with what I've seen in any professional sport. And obviously I've seen majority of it's cricket. And, yes, we had a very professional environment uh, that era. Guys trained, you know, magnificently well and, and the attention to detail was excellent. But I think the level of detail physically – was a level above at the AFL because the game is different. You know, it's such it's a intense, physical game, eighty minutes, high intensity. Whereas cricket, you can get away with that a little bit more, and it is obviously more of a mental challenge. Not to say that footy isn't, because there's mental challenges in footy as well. But the attention to detail was, I thought, magnificent, and the the level of work that the coaches put in, uh, not just the head coach, but also all the line coaches underneath. Well, the um,
1: GWS head coach. Did I tell you I did a keynote with him last year? And I sort of worked out that we knew each other. And he said, oh, you had a real impact at GWS. So he said, you actually had a real impact with what you did with the leadership and the players. But he was talking about the hours he worked. And I was there talking at a a mortgage-broking conference about work-life balance. And then he mentioned how many hours he works. And we sort of had a bit of a chat offline that, you know, is it healthy, is it sustainable to work those hours as a senior AFL coach? Like 80 plus, 90 hours a week, right, in season.
0: Oh, it's it's phenomenal. And that was the one thing that, I ended up – I was doing not that sort of level of hours, but I I wasn't far behind in terms of the contact hours at the club. And it is difficult because it's all-consuming. You're either in or you can't be sitting on the fence. Once you're in a footy club, you're in and you're invested because the players sense in your role if you're not – So what I did learn from the footy club that I've tried to take across to cricket coaching now is that when it comes to the actual individual one-on-one sessions that the coaches had with the young players, I think there's a real opportunity in cricket to try and fast-track and develop players with the use of the technology and the footage. And that's something that I think in a game like T20 now where it's decision-making ball after ball, whether you're a batsman or a bowler, there's a great opportunity there in cricket and that's something I've transferred already in my short coaching career in T20, what I learned from the AFL, and that's had a good impact from what I've done already with some of the coaches that have worked under me when I've been a head coach. Um A quick break in the program to let you know
1: about the Performance Intelligence Masterclass. You see, every week we receive a number of requests from people listening to the podcast or attending one of my keynote presentations wanting to know more about personal performance coaching. Due to the demands on my time running StriveStronger.com, delivering mental skills training for athletes and sporting teams, my speaking practice, and also having four kids, I only allocate a set amount of time each week, about half a day, towards coaching and this is primarily targeted at senior executives and entrepreneurs and founders. The starting price for my coaching programs is $15,000 which I realize is a lot of money and it's prohibitive for many people. So based on the success of a 12-month coaching program we've been delivering for a number of corporate clients, we are launching a public version of Performance Intelligence Masterclass. It's open to the public and it's open to people like you. But if you would like to boost your psychological fitness and resilience, enhance physical well-being and energy, if you want to live longer, if you want to increase productivity, if you want to enhance cognitive capacity and decision-making, and if you want to do this with a support group of like-minded people, oh, and if you also want to make more money, Performance Intelligence Masterclass has been designed for you. How does it work? Well, the format is we pick a theme for each quarter. Like being match fit, or boosting productivity, or accelerating mental skills, enhancing leadership, etc. There's a half-day group workshop. Then we have six weeks of check-ins where you're made accountable each week, just by asking five or six key questions. And then we wrap that up with a 60 to 90-minute workshop six weeks after the half-day workshop. And then for the rest of the quarter, you put this into practice. To find out more, go to andrewmay.com/slash. Performance Intelligence Masterclass. (laughs) Caddo, when you stack up the amount of cricket you played, including domestic cricket in Australia, playing for two county teams over in the UK, you played 56 test matches, you played a similar amount of one-day matches for your country. When you transitioned to coach and when you walked out the first time in the IPL, were you nervous? Did did you have the same nerves and adrenaline running through your body as you did when you walked out there as an opening batter?
0: Well, in a way, I feel like I've done my time because I had... Uh, four years as an assistant at Kolkata, but I also had two years as a head coach in the Caribbean Premier League. And that that experience as a head coach, I think, has given me the confidence to know that um, I can fill that role, having been a, previously been a captain, but then also being successful a couple of times there in the CPL mm-hmm. and understanding how to try and get the best out of people. I know it doesn't equate to being able to win the IPL because it is a lower level tournament, but... I feel confident that I've done my time as an assistant and now it's a matter of being really firm in in wanting to go about it a certain way, but also allowing the, the coaches under me and the players um, to be able to you know, have their own freedom to do things the way they want. Because I know as a player, I didn't like to be told how to do things all the time. And the one thing that I remember as a player, which I've tried to carry on as a, crick- as a coach, is that I never thought I wanted to coach when I was a player because the one thing I was concerned about was I was concerned about not being able to control the outcome of a game.
1: So you you didn't want to coach while you played?
0: No, no. Or you didn't want to be a coach? When I finished playing, I was reluctant to coach because I wondered whether I was going to be able to cope mentally with not being able to influence the outcome of games,
1: I just thought, I've never asked you this, I just thought that with your transition, I remember remember us talking when you were looking at going to GWS and I said, mate, I think it's great for you, get out of cricket and go do something else. I just thought that was part of your development path. I thought that you had reverse engineered what you needed to do to be a great coach.
0: No, I honestly felt I would stay in footy for a long time and I loved the role, I, I the club gave me a great opportunity to learn about the footy operations manager role and it was a role that I probably, if I did it well, I could have been doing it for a while because- Did you get out and have a kick most days as well? I was. I was running with the boys on weekends.
1: Actually, I saw- I was I saw, the runner. I saw a game and I looked out and thought, I think- I know, I know that technique
0: <laughs> and you trying to get that guy to get his knees up. I blew my calf. for I think round 16 at the Gabba, the, the hard ground of the Gabba got me and I was doing sort of 15, 18 Ks a weekend but that taught me about what the players went through on the field. So, yeah, just going back to that point about the, the coaching side of things was that the reason I didn't think I was going to coach was because I loved being in control as a player because you feel like you can influence a game. As a coach – you sit back and you know you've got to trust the players. So with that, I've taken that into my coaching to realise, well, I can prepare them as well as I'd like, but ultimately I've got to trust these guys on game day and trust the captain because I know what it was like as a captain. If you've got someone in your ear all the time, he actually takes away from you making decisions and you feel like potentially they want to control things. So I've tried to take a back seat as a coach, allow the captain to do it how he wants to do it. So far that's served me well in the roles I've done elsewhere but the IPL is a different beast altogether.
1: It's compounding, right? The the challenges you had as a player, as well as the wins, the way that you've been able to compartmentalise, getting out of cricket, learning from a high-performance sport like AFL, coming back into it, it sounds like all this has sort of been rolling up and communication, like your radio and also doing Channel 7, has now got you ready for this coaching position. But let's talk about Virat. Virat Kali, who is India's number one, not, not just cricketer, he's a rock star, right? He's married to a Bollywood. An actress and and I think for people who haven't been to either to India or involved in cricket they just have no idea the magnitude of these players and their lives it is it's not even a goldfish bowl it's just like it's like um, Thunderdome you
0: know two men enter one man lead. it's just it. everyone's watching I played against Virat when he first started and well, I think it was in the Champions League in 2010 in, in India and he was this precocious young talent and everyone knew he was going to be a great player then mm. and I think what we've seen over these last ten years is he will go down, no no doubt, as one of the all time greats because his record across all three formats is probably second to none. Mm. Uh, I think well, he 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 played ten years ago.
1: I reckon he, you have to ask him. Did he model the way he played on how Australians played ten years ago? Because he he was different. He it was like it wasn't a disrespect, but it was
0: like a. If you guys are going to mouth, so am I, but I'm going to show you what I do with the bat. And that's – the irony about this all is that right from the word go, I've loved the way he's gone about it because I see a lot of how we went about our cricket in the way he plays his cricket. So I know there's been a lot made of that and the emotion he shows and the aggression and all that, but I've always loved that and that's part of the game. It's it's a It's a competition. It's a contest. So if it's coming naturally to you, and I think that's his natural demeanour, then you've you've got to allow that to to flourish. Obviously, there's times where you've got to be mindful of that as captain and what pressure that brings on the players that are underneath you. But uh, the one thing that I love is that raw emotion and passion for the game. Mm -hmm. But in terms of my dealings with him so far, they've been magnificent. I think we get to see a different side to what the public see because we see a a character that's calm and laid back and very well-spoken, You know, what he's been able to do, I think, in the last period of time as Indian captain has been nothing short of special because they won here for the first time ever in Australia for a test series, which is unheard of. So he's taking this Indian team to places it hasn't been before. He's doing it not just off his own back, but with, you know, a very good team around him. Crystal Ball, five to 10 years from here, we come back and do a
1: podcast, let's say 10 what are you doing? So the, by then the boys what, nearly left school, left school, your
0: eldest. What are you doing in 10 years' time? Gee, that's a good question because I don't think I've looked that far in front. I never looked that far in front in my cricket career because you couldn't afford to with your level of competition. i, I like to have plans but also think in 10 years' time I'd like to be at a stage where I'm really um, relaxing and and you know maybe travelling more maybe doing as much as I am now with the kids even when they are maybe finished school. Mm. So that's probably going to be the hard part if they want to go down their own path and dad, see you later. Sort of the- what if they say um- – either or both of your boys hey Dad, I want to play cricket. So
1: Archie uh, said to me last year, Dad, I think I want to play cricket. And this is terrible, but he got out in the second ball and there was a part of me that went, yes. (laughs) (laughs) He's, He's doing really well in soccer. Soccer goes for 80 minutes or 90 minutes at the top level. Cricket goes for five days. So what will you say if one of your boys
0: says, hey, Dad, I want to go the same path as you and play cricket? Look, I'll encourage it if they want to, but I certainly won't be pushing them to do that. I think already there's signs that, Uh, my eldest Xavier loves sport and Leo's starting to cotton on that he wants to play with Big Brother and, and sort of looks up to Big Brother but Xavier loves it and he plays footy plays soccer plays cricket but whether he wants to pursue that Only time will tell. Xavier and Archie are in the same AFL team coming up soon, so let's. How about I do
1: the (laughs) warm-ups? I give them some speed training, and then you can take everything from there. I'll I'll take care of all the fruit and veggies. Yeah, you've seen my skills. (laughs) You're doing a fair bit of radio. uh, You're doing a bit of media. How did you get into that, and what have you got out of that? Why Why did you want to go down the media path? I, I actually would not have been surprised if you'd finished and had gone and worked
0: for a consulting firm. You know, to use your accounting background, or gone into corporate. Yeah, I, I didn't do it initially, but after a couple of years at the Giants, the opportunity came up to work for the ABC along with the opportunity in the IPL, and I, I thought the fit was really good at the time, the two roles, because in a way they complement each other, but they also provide me the flexibility with family life, but also in terms of you know watching the game here and judging players on what they do playing test cricket has a flow-on effect for some of the T20 leagues because a lot of the best players can transfer those skills to the the roles that i was looking at for IPL and also the cpl so i think they complement each other then also the analysis you do as a broadcaster whether it's tv or radio is very much what you're doing in your role as a coach so watching a lot of footage breaking down techniques and then seeing how players perform in certain moments of a game where you know the game is at a crunch point because you've been there as a player did
1: did you hear what you said just then I've I've realised this with you today. You break stuff down. You reverse engineer. I don't – have you always realised that's one of your superpowers?
0: Probably not, but I think now I realise it in the roles that I'm doing because I wish when I was playing I'd had the same level of, I guess, analysis in my own game and others' game when I was still playing because I actually think not only with the commentary but also with coaching, I think both of them – uh, would have helped me enormously as a player. And so I think now one of the things players could really do to fast-track their learning as a player and understanding their own game and their opposition's game is to maybe do the role part-time during the winter or something like that because it, it actually makes you more aware of what you're actually trying to do on the field when you're under pressure. Sometimes when you play, you just, you, you just play naturally and trust your instincts, whereas when you've got the ability to analyse it as a coach or as a commentator – you can actually learn more about what makes you perform
1: and what doesn't. That insight didn't come until after you'd finished. Um, How do you get that into a player who's just worried about making runs, kicking goals, running the times?
0: Yeah, and it's it's hard when you're playing because you don't want to have too much on your mind and you want to keep it as simple as possible. And I think I did have probably part of that analysis within me and that game awareness, but I also know it's gone to another level now as a coach. And, and and even as a broadcaster, because people want to get to the bottom of why Marnus Labuschagne has the summary has, and you you go because the technology is so good now. And I must admit, where players are blessed now with the level of technology that the broadcasters have, because we didn't have that twenty years ago mm. to break down your game. And if you came, did you came to did embrace the it, school
1: board right twenty years ago, yeah, that was it.
0: and that's where John Buchanan was probably ahead of his time because he did analyse the game and all the data and the footage and broke it down to come up with game plans to, to opposition teams. And that's where, as a coach now, everyone does it, so it's, it's commonplace. But he did that back in the mid-'90s for Queensland and they dominated. So now if you can do it better than the other teams and get the players to implement it, then you've got an advantage. The thing is, everyone's doing it now so it's it's very much across it's the board but rising. from a playing point of view, the players that embrace it and em- embrace the constructive criticism, their careers will benefit from it because they will be ahead of the game because everyone's looking at the, the footage, the coaches are trying to you know break down someone's game to, to win a series and you see it Players that tinker with their technique and get better, and Steve Smith another great example. He tinkered with his technique; his, his game's gone through the roof because he he understands what he's doing now and he sticks to it. So, with that knowledge, looking back
1: at Simon Kadic playing from Test cricket from two thousand and one to two thousand and eleven, what would have been different? I'm going to be sort of agitate you a little bit. Test captain, a uh, hundred Test matches, twenty five, thirty centuries.
0: What, what might have been different for me, I think, was that I played my best cricket test level when I opened from 2008 to 2010. The problem for me was that it was when I was probably past my best. So I still did well, but I was at an age where I was you know, nearly done. So from sort of 33 through to 35 as a batsman, like what I did in test cricket, not a lot of guys could probably do at that age. but I probably needed to be doing that at sort of 27, 28, and I had opportunities to do that then, but I was always in and out of the team. Mm. So I think if I'd been able to have that same sort of run at it in my late 20s but have that really good understanding of my game by that stage, and I know when I got back in in 2008 – the knowledge of my game and what I'd been through from probably being in and out of the team from 05 oh, through to You were a different player. Totally I was a different. completely different player. And as was mentioned earlier, I became ruthless with my game because in that three-year period where I was in and out, and rightly so, I got dropped after the 05 Ashes didn't perform well enough, I understood my game better because of what I went through. I got exposed in the 05 Ashes. I was making a few technical errors. I rectified those. And if I hadn't rectified them, I wouldn't have come back and been as dominant as I was from 08 to 2010, at a stage of my career where I knew I was my reflexes were starting to slow and I wasn't anywhere near as good as I was in my probably late 20s. But what I had was a stronger mind and probably a more relaxed attitude because I knew this was my last crack at it. So I knew that I was going to make the most of it with that mentality, but I also understood my game and the technique with my game so much better. So it took all that. To get to that point, but if I'd had that probably three or four years earlier, then maybe over that window of time, I wouldn't have been in and out and potentially might have played 70 to 80 to 100 tests.
1: Maybe you wouldn't be commentating and coaching now because you haven't had that life experience and resilience. So yeah, it's always you know, coulda, shoulda, woulda. Peter Roebuck, around, it must have been that 09, started a, a bit of a swell about you being future test captain. You obviously heard that. You probably read it, even though players say they don't read the newspaper. We know you all do. Did you ever think that you may have been given a tap on the shoulder by James Sutherland or CA to be the Australian cricket captain?
0: I'll be honest. I read about it. I knew full well because it was. I think it was back page at one point, and I was out of the team at the time, which made it even harder for me because when you're out of the team and they start talking about that and given who was involved at the time – it was obviously going to make things pretty awkward for me personally if I was to get back in in that scenario. But it had started well before that. I mean, it started for me when I was at the academy back in 96 and Rod Marsh put that sort of tag on my head coming out of the academy and I hadn't even played first-class cricket, which made it even harder walking into that environment with a, a future captain sort of tag. And I didn't enjoy it at all because I didn't see myself like that. I just wanted to prove myself as a player but then the opportunities came to be a captain, and it's something I enjoyed doing, but it's not something I set out to do. Mm. So it was a byproduct of, I guess, just my nature and then how I played. But I must admit, looking back on my career now, I feel really lucky to have been given the opportunities for WA, for New South Wales, to do it overseas as well, because I think what it's taught me is, has been able to help me now post-cricket in terms of being able to manage people understand how to get the best out of people and if I'd never done those roles I think it would have made me just more about myself as a player rather than being across everyone because my greatest memory of the game now is not what I achieved as a player but it's all the great moments I had when we won titles whether it was for WA whether it was for New South Wales whether it was in England uh, whether it's been coaching now overseas that is what is what I'm probably most proud of, the the amount of successful teams I've played in and also the ones with Australia as well. And I think that might not have happened had I not had that experience as a captain because it's what's driven me now to do what I do Mm. to try and create team success because the joy it brings everyone and not just the players but the support staff and the bonds you make because you all go on the journey over 10 months and, you know, having been a part of it with New South Wales, it's not just a – one month or two month journey it's in a way it's it's a year long a a career long journey it's a decade correct and when you get there and you start winning consistently there's no better feeling that once you've done it you want it again because i don't know what drugs are like but i'm assuming they're highly addictive from what i've read about them and to me, winning's addictive as well. And that's what winning was for me as a player. I've got an
1: idea for a new book. We might co-write it together. It's called Naturally High. It's the hit you get from the dopamine, from playing sport, from a swim in the ocean, from you know, the sun rising and all that stuff. So it is, it's addictive. Yeah. Now, you alluded to tension before with the Australian cricket captain. Um, I didn't know whether we were going to have this chat, but you've opened <laughs> the window for me. 2009 in the, the dressing room. So I'd been working with the Australian cricket team in the lead-up to that. Um, and then when this a couple of years before that. And then the following day, front page, Simon
0: Cadditch has a bust-up with Michael Clark. So what happened? Yeah, look, it's been well documented. We had a, a physical altercation in the dressing room. Um, part of it was about the singing of the team song, but part of it also was, was about the words that Michael chose to use to me personally. So I took offence to that, and I've always been brought up to stand up for myself. And I don't regret doing that um, because I felt what was said wasn't right or correct and and I if I didn't stand up for myself then I never would. So I did it. When it all happened, I was disappointed that, you know, one of my teammates left the room and didn't come back for the song. So I did apologize to our our coach Tim Nielsen at the time and our captain Ricky Ponting. But then we also had a couple of young players that were on debut, Doug Bollinger and Andrew McDonald. And I never forget, because I was pretty upset about it all and disappointed with what happened because I never thought that would happen after a test win. Well, right, you'd um, grown up, right? That you, you just hung around in the room, like you would stay yeah, until you, early hours of the yeah, morning. And that was the sort of the sort of precedent was that the songmaster, whoever it was, whether it was David Boone, whether it was Ian Healy, whether it was Justin Langer, and, and, it was and, and now time, it was Mike right? Hussey, They got to determine when the song song was sung. So, you know, this was still pretty early in the piece. It had been a tough summer. We lost to South Africa, but we just want to test right and right at the death. I think we got well, the last wicket, Graham Smith, with about two or three overs to go. And we'd only come off the field at probably 6.30 at night. So, But what I'd never forget was that the mood got lightened as soon as Andrew McDonald piped up because I said, oh, look, sorry, boys, didn't mean this to happen. But McDo- uh, Andrew McDonald said, "Cat, don't worry, this sort of shit happens in the Victorian dressing room every week. <laughs> so <laughs> that sort of that. lightened the mood. <laughs> yeah. well, after that, we kept on having a few beers and and then, you know, that's what happened. And can't hide behind it, it happened. But ultimately, you know, down the track, Uh, Michael became captain, and that probably coincided with when my time in the Australian team finished up. And, you know, people will say that had nothing to do with it, but, you know, whatever's happened, I look back on it now and go, look, that's that's what's panned out. Maybe it was meant to be, and it has given me a great time with my family and, and given me these opportunities to post cricket do roles that I've been really lucky to do.
1: Not many people average 50 and don't renew their contract.
0: Yeah, and that's what I mean. That that three year period, as a test opener, to average fifty in that period, is is probably one of the individual highlights of my career to be able to do it. As I said, when I was probably. Not at the peak of my powers I was still playing well but you were hobbling on one leg mate you had to, your Achilles stuck together with sticky tape Yeah but I did get back from that not long after the injury and and ended up playing first class cricket for a couple of years after that and probably had some of my best seasons not only in Australia but also in England in that time but look time moves on and and I realized that you know I was very lucky to play in the year I did so whilst it wasn't you know a great way to end in the end, I also look back on my career and think very, very lucky and blessed to have played in the era I did and to have played 56 tests because, you know, there was plenty in my era that, you know, or our era that, you know, were very, very good players that didn't even get to play one test.
1: Well, there's a saying back then, right? It's harder to get your way out of the Australian cricket team than it is to get in. So but once you're in, you're in there for a long time. But when you've got, you go, go through that order. Hayden Langer, Ponting, Damian Martin, Michael Hussey. we have got Gilchrist. Have I missed anyone in there? You've got McGrath. You've got... The War Brothers. The War Brothers. When oh, God, I first started. Um, Kasper, which was in there. Andy Bickle's in there as well. You've got Warney, Warnie. The king, Gillespie. Andy, Gillespie. McGilla. Oh, my God. Richness of talent. So, yeah, 56 is not bad. Do you love the game as much now? Do you love it more now than you did when you were
0: playing? Oh, look, I think... I think you love it most when you're playing because that's your passion, but I still think I get a huge amount of joy out of being involved in the game now and I think I wouldn't be doing it if I didn't enjoy it and I think that's always the telltale sign because ultimately life's short and you can't do what you're doing if you're not enjoying it. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it's going to become a chore, and and you're probably not going to get out of bed in the morning to do it. So I know that I love what I do because I keep doing it. But I know that I get a lot of joy out of coaching the kids because i I see that same sort of passion that I had as a kid now in the kids, whether it's my son or whether it's his mates, the joy out of them hitting a six or getting a wicket or or taking a catch or celebrating as a group. And I look back and I think, geez, that brings back great memories for me when I was their age. So, I think that's a big part of it for me now is being able to pass that that sort of passion back on to the next generation. You've probably done dozens of interviews where people ask you about players,
1: and I wasn't going to ask you about every single one of those players. I've got to ask about a few though, so I'm going to give you a name, a couple of bullet points about that person, um, Langer JL. So you grew up with him in WA. You're good mates.
0: Well, I'd say. He was like a big brother, but I can't because he's five foot or five foot <laughs> two. But he was like a big brother. I never had a big brother, but um, we joke about it because playing for WA when I was sort of in my early 20s, you know, the opposition teams would give it to you if you're the new kid on the block and guys like myself and my cussy would cop it from a few of the teams. So Justin was always that big brother figure who would give it back and stand up for you. And now having worked with him, so I was captain with him when he first took over at the Scorchers and WA, his role what what he's done as a coach hasn't surprised me because he's highly dedicated he's very very professional but he's also very passionate and the journey he's had as a player has held him in good stead for what he's doing now because he gets, it's not just about teaching these guys about technique and all that. There's there's a bigger picture life. to it all. It's whole life.
1: There's some similarities with you, too. He's a bit more intense than you.
0: I, I think so. I'd like to think, I know people probably view me as being intense and they saw that on the field, but I also know what I'm like off the field. And I feel like I'm a pretty relaxed character and enjoy beer and, and enjoy that side of things. Um, but also, yeah, the discipline side of things with Justin was to another level. Like, I know I trained hard. But I don't think I trained to the extreme he did. Probably because physically there were times where I knew I had to back off because I felt like my immune system got shot after I had the glandular fever and, and the chickenpox, whereas Justin just flogged himself like there was no, no one else.
1: So as a fitness trainer, he was like, I put you and him in the same bracket that you just go, here's what you're doing today probably put McGillar in the other side. <laughs> 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 he had to use every possible piece of power and coercion to get McGillar to go for a walk. Warney, Shane Warne.
0: Yeah, magnificent. Obviously the greatest, I think the greatest bowler that I've seen. Between him and Murali, they were standouts. I think the thing I loved most about Warney was his knowledge of the game, but his fun and energy for the game. So having got to play with him at Hampshire and he was captain and played under him. I saw that firsthand, great tactic tactician, made the game fun. Like, for instance, for me, being a, a player that was more of a nudger, he brought in the competition in at Hampshire, I think it was in 2004. We had a six-hitting competition and it was across all competitions. And it got to the point where I was starting to try and ping sixes in County Championship well, you matches. Started doing, you started doing curls, you, I didn't did I did doing the the bicep curls and the um, the um, forearm curls to get the forearms strong. So little things like that 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 sort of made it made you think differently about playing the game, and I became a more aggressive player. Having gone through that that period with him as captain, and having little challenges like that, and adapting it to T Twenty to, to One Day cricket, and so a great,
1: great team person. Like he really was, like an assistant coach, making sure you know first players there. He'd take them out to dinner. You know, he'd go for a walk with them. He just he did. I was amazed to see the little things he
0: did that no one knew. He was magnificent, and he was magnificent with the families in terms of um, being really respectful of them always signing autographs for the kids, all the things that we saw that people don't always get the chance to see. And then the other thing is what, what I didn't realise until we started playing with him at, at county level was that, you know, going out for dinner, he just loved talking cricket. And I thought he'd be the complete opposite. So he was a, a real cricket nothing in a way. But he was brilliant, particularly the county boys. They all just l- looked up to him, loved playing poker with him. So he's he gave of his time, as all good captains do, and uh, he was fun to play under. Steve Wall? Yeah, what can I say? Probably the most inspirational because I guess, you know, his career was inspirational in the way it panned out because, you know, it took him so long to prove that he was a test player, or, you know, whatever it was, 30 odd tests before he got his first test 100. And then when he got it and he broke through, he was just ruthless. Um, so, from my point of view, what I learned from him was that, you know, he backed you to the hilt, believed in you. And that's something that, you know, even if you had a little bit of self doubt yourself, you didn't sense it from him. And that's always a telltale, telltale sign of a really good captain that they can convince you, even if there is that little bit of self doubt, particularly when you're starting your test career. There's always going to be a little bit of it mm-hmm. until you prove to yourself that you're good enough. Uh, but he backed me to the hilt enormously, not only for New South Wales, but for Australia. And, you know, that's why I think he was so successful as captain because, you know, people would. As they say, run through a brick wall for him, and I think it was also the tradition he created with the, you know, the baggy green. You know, I was very fortunate. One of my proudest moments in the game was getting my baggy green from Richie Benno, and that, that's a tradition that he brought in as captain. You know, that wouldn't have been the case had he not done that. Pretty and,
1: amazing person to get your baggy green and, from. And,
0: and the thing was that I never forget it because you know I had my family and friends there at Headingley in the Ashes series, and. You know, it wasn't just Richie, it was the fact that, you know, he said to us all, he said, there are many more important things in life uh, than a baggy green cap, but to an Australian cricketer, it is the ultimate achievement every time you wear it, wear it with pride and enjoy yourself. And is that he, the exact word? That's exactly what Did he you said. you want to do it with his accent? I, I wish I could. <laughs> but, you know, th- to have that and the meaning behind it, and I know those words are with me forever now, and I, I certainly remembered that when I got back in the test team in 2008 because... I was probably guilty of maybe not enjoying it as much as I should have early on because you can want it so much and you forget about what helps you get there in the first place, which is just going out there and relaxing and having fun. And, and that, to me, would not have happened had Steve War not brought that tradition in. So I think we're all, you know, very privileged to have had him, you know, do that sort of stuff.
1: Michael Clark, the cricketer.
0: Yeah, magnificent player. You know, in terms of tactically as a captain, he was magnificent as well. I didn't get to play under him, unfortunately, but, you know, what he did with the team, the success he had, you know, there's no doubt he had a very good cricket brain. Um, As a batsman, you know, he was a magnificent player. We saw that from a young age here at New South Wales uh, across all formats. And obviously we had – I mean, we had some unbelievable partnerships together. So – You, you, you. Played a lot of cricket. We played a lot of cricket together, not only for uh, Australia but also for New South Wales. Uh, He was a huge talent. So, uh, And not just with the the bat, obviously in the field, he was a gun in the field uh, and he was also handy with the ball as we saw a number of times for Australia in test cricket. So, you know, and that's probably what makes it all the more disappointing about what unfolded in the dressing room is that for a long period of time... We were good teammates and played really good cricket together. But unfortunately, it got to a point where, you know, there was an issue and it got to that point where it came to a, you know, came to a head.
1: The open-ended one, the most fun and or annoying player.
0: And, and it, it's normally a bowler. Who so Who is the most fun? Oh, God, that's a tough question because, you know, there was so many great teammates over the years. Um,
1: Two or three guys in a team would just change the
0: energy. I tell you, the, the most fun and the funniest is probably Murray Goodwin playing for WA. Okay. So he played for Zimbabwe. He had probably one of the best senses of humour of all the players I played with. A very dry sense of humour. Always fun to be around. He'd lighten the mood of the dressing room. Very good player. Unfortunately, with what happened in Zimbabwe, he probably didn't play as much international cricket as he, he would have hoped for. So he was probably, yeah, one of the, the Who's standout. the most annoying? Uh, most annoying is, is a pick between McGrath and Doug Bollinger. <laughs> and it's always the quicks. They're just, yeah, they're just typical pests. <laughs> so, and you spend so much time together in the dressing room that, you know, that unfortunately they get up to their antics and, and drive you crazy. I could always remember Dougie when we were doing training in the off season, and we'd say to everyone, "Take
1: your heart rate for fifteen seconds. You know, double it, double it again." <laughs> Dougie, what'd you get? One fifty-seven. Dougie, you can't get an odd number. Double it, double it again. What'd you get? One fifty-nine. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> we'll call it one sixty. Why do more batters become coaches than
0: bowlers? Uh, maybe it's the mindset around the game is different because I think in in cricket, you know, batting, you've got a different character and, and, and persona and. and Uh, mindset because everything's riding on getting things right because you know if you make a mistake, you're back in the sheds and you're watching and and it's a tough, lonely game. Whereas bowling is so different. They can make mistakes all the time, the bowlers, but they get a chance to come back and, you know, they could have a bad spell of bowling but then end up having a really good innings or or good day if they come back well. Whereas cricket, you can have one bad one bad ball, make one bad decision. So I think, you know, the characteristics around batting and even – the difference between being an opener compared to being a middle order player because you know that you, your tough scenarios are potentially against that new ball when the bowlers are fresh the new ball is going to do a bit more than maybe an older ball so you do tend to see quite a few coaches probably are, are more of a batting background but it doesn't mean that the bowlers can't become good coaches but Maybe so that's Gillespie is. Yeah, he's 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 had very good success. So yeah, maybe there is something in that. Look, I don't know. Maybe it's just those players are uh, you know want to do those roles. But yeah, I wish I could put a finger on it, but I'm not sure whether that's the be all and end all behind it. Question i never asked you throughout your career. Because I think
1: back then we were just thinking and I'll go back to Stumper, you know, who gave me the opportunity to come into cricket it was an amazing opportunity. I learned so much from him. But Stumper back then it was you do your, your fitness stuff in the off season and then you do your cricket and then it sort of blended in. The the mental side, the psychological side is it's so new. And we're only just starting to see that now in a lot of professional sports, right? You mentioned that the Giants, you had a sports psychologist you were working
0: with on leadership. What did you do? on the mind game. yeah, so when we first started in uh, WA we first got in the co- in the squad we had a um, a sports psych that took us all aside and started to teach us about goal setting and visualization and all those key principles around sports psych which at the time were probably reasonably new in the game of cricket. Um, and obviously it's evolved over time and now it's probably more widespread because of you know the areas we're seeing with mental health and stuff like that and the game has changed like there's more cricket now the players are on the road more they're away from home more so there's more challenges for the players but I think where we learnt a lot of our sports psych was from our teammates and also playing cricket all year round so I think my mental skills evolved from playing county cricket and playing all year round and even playing club cricket a lot because you're actually learning when you're under pressure about what works and what doesn't work and what you're thinking and and i guess the one thing that stood out was we were encouraged to write little notes about certain instances, well certain experiences good or bad so that was something that stood out for me early on in my career was writing down the, the days where you do well what Maybe what you were thinking, I'm how so you were feeling. You, you yeah. Had your whole a little career. journal. Have you still uh, got those? Uh, maybe tucked away somewhere. It'd be um,
1: interesting to dig those up and read. Yeah, and
0: we, we were encouraged to do that at the academy as well, where we did all those sort of learn those skills. So there's no doubt it was taught to us. But then eventually, it got to a point where you have to, you know. Understand it yourself and know that you're on your own at times because as soon as you start playing professionally in all different teams, you maybe don't have access to the same person all the time. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, you might have a variety of different coaches. So you've actually got to coach yourself if something doesn't quite feel right. So I was always a big believer that the more self sufficient you become as a batsman, the better it is because once you're out there, if something's not quite right or not feeling right, It's too late if you're pulling someone aside. You've got
1: a good ability to take a situation, we'll call it
0: a performance moment,
1: analyse it, learn from it, recorrect. Not everyone has that.
0: Yeah, and that's where I think over my career I got better at being able to deal with it in the moment out in the middle so that when I played a shot that didn't quite go to where I wanted it, I knew full well that, hang on, that ball was supposed to go here and it went here and it's 15 metres different and that's – that is the difference between playing with confidence and not playing with confidence. And when you start second guessing where the ball's going to go as a batsman, you start to play a lot more restricted cricket. Whereas when you can direct the ball exactly where you want it to go, you play a different game and your game, you know, is at a higher level with confidence. So once I got to that point of understanding what it was technically that wasn't quite right and making the adjustment in game, I became a far more consistent and better player because I wasn't having that conversation with the coach after the event I was was dealing with myself in the moment and then was good enough to be able to get through that little period where it might be tougher and then wait for a period where I knew okay I could start to play more shots and then play them exactly how I wanted to play them Mm with high percentage options because the wicket had changed or the ball would change or the bowlers were tired and, and that's I think what I got better at throughout my career.
1: Well, To keep that theme, I want to keep you on the front foot. I've got seven questions I ask. I haven't told you all these questions so yeah, I just want to see how you handle some of these. What is your favourite song
0: and why? Oh, Without doubt, it's uh, Sweet Child of Mine by Guns N' Roses. Great album.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I can remember you blaring that in the change room as well.
0: Um, your morning routine, what do you do? Well, it's changed a lot. Uh, prior to kids, it was trying to sleep in as much as possible. I love my sleep, but now it's different. Uh, up early with the kids um, to get them ready for school and get into the routine of, you know, making the breakfast and, and helping George make the lunches, but I'm there making them breakfast. And, um, you know, generally we've done homework the night before, so there's not that morning rush. So I like them to be relaxed before going to school. Um, yeah, just getting them ready and all that sort of routine. So they take precedence and then after that, um, once they're out the door, and I can get get on to what I need to get done for the day.
1: In your portfolio career, when you turn up for different moments throughout the day, throughout the week, throughout the year, do you consciously do anything physically or psychologically to get in the state or in the right state? So before you're like live on Channel 7?
0: Yeah, I, I like to make sure that I'm not rushed. And that was the same with that at cricket. So with batting in particular, I like to make sure I always gave myself plenty of time so that I could think about what was about to unfold and make sure I was ready for that um there's nothing worse than feeling rushed as a batsman um that's where you know when you got half a second to react and i reckon i've taken that into my roles now in terms of being prepared for you know what we're going to talk about on air or, or coaching what the main message of the session or the game's going to be so with my coaching I, I like to think i'm really prepared i've got my notebook I've done hours of analysis when it comes to the opposition analysis. That's come out in today's And that's come, come into my coaching. And um, I guess one of my closest relationships in cricket coaching now is with my analyst. Yeah. And that's something that I think has helped me as a coach, having a really good connection there and trusting them to do their job and, and letting them flourish because that is, is a huge factor in being able to expose opponents as a coach. How many times have you watched Moneyball? I haven't, and I've got to. You I've got to, it. I've got to watch it. And I've oh, got Kat, to. You'll love it. I know, and, and that's something that I think, having been involved in the IPL now and having a say in the auctions and how we go about structuring the spend and all that, that's something I'd, I've definitely got to do.
1: Question four: What book or what books have had the most impact on your life?
0: Look, I wasn't a big reader when I played, but I, I did like reading autobiographies. So, I mean, I've, I've read some great autobiographies, but I think now, post cricket, the one that stood out has been. Uh, Legacy by James Kerr, which was you know based All on blacks. the leadership leadership lessons from the All Blacks. So that's something that I implemented at the um, at the Giants, uh, and it was something that was recommended to me by Justin. Um, I think he maybe read it himself previously, and, and when I read it, I I realised that it was so um, it was specific to the giants because they were starting out this new culture mm-hmm. and they're young athletes and they were still learning about leadership themselves and there was a lot of things in there that i know that i'd probably followed as a player without maybe realizing it but there was also some great learnings you know in terms of the culture and building a culture and and the boys got a lot out of it so there's a few things they implemented um which was great to see uh, and i think to, to, I guess, model yourself on a team that's been so successful in professional sport, um, you've it's got to look at culture. the best and, and that's something that the All Blacks have been very good at. I was being optimistic then. I thought you were going to say match fit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting there. I'm getting there. <laughs> You're busy. It's, it's ready ready to be read.
1: <laughs> There's pictures in it
0: as well. There yes, is some just... <laughs> amazing photo. It's amazing what modern technology can do with the uh, photos I've seen. <laughs> I set myself up for that, didn't I? <laughs> um,
1: next question. Who has been the biggest influence on your career?
0: Well, look, there's been so many, it's hard to say one in particular. Um, Obviously, family, friends play a huge part when it comes to professional sport because without that support network, you know, it it is a tough environment. So I I definitely think there. But I think from a cricket point of view, um, I I mentioned him before, but I guess in terms of my cricket and batting mentor, Kevin Gartrell, he played a huge role in not only teaching me about what it, what was required to be a first class and, and test player, but also, you know, um, what it was to be, a, you know, a person as well, trying to make their way in the game of cricket and, and what was required. So, you know, there was a lot of valuable lessons I learnt from him, not just from a batting point of view, but just in terms of, you know, the type of person um, that I end up becoming as well. Mm. Question six, what's your number?
1: Yeah, I I get that look a fair bit, test matches, uh, runs. Well, it's Uh, 384 in test cricket. I I should be a little bit, I'm being a little bit provocative.
0: What what number do you want to live to? What age? Well, I've always thought I'd love, I loved raising the bat in cricket and I butchered a few in the 90s. (laughs) So those 10 hundreds should have been probably 15, but um, look, I'd love to get to 100. Um, I think now when you have kids, I think your outlook changes because I guess you want to be around as long as possible to see their lives and then potentially their children so um yeah look i'd try to look after myself but also know having you know been through what i've been through recently and, and witnessing all that um, that we also know that life's precious and it can change quickly. So I don't take it for granted, but hopefully I'm here for a long time. Yeah.
1: Well, we're interviewing a few people on this podcast coming up on longevity, and there's a whole wave of science and belief coming through that 100 will be normal. Which so, is, I hope so. Yeah. I want us to be both raising the bat in uh, a number of years. It'll be nice to to get there. Final question is, what, what are you most proud of? So when you look back in your 40-odd years,
0: what are you most proud of? Uh... From a cricket point of view, definitely, as I mentioned before, the amount of winning teams I got to play in, not only as a player but also as a captain, um, that's given me a huge amount of, um, you know, enjoyment and, and a sense of achievement. I guess now I think without doubt having kids is is a huge achievement and seeing them grow and hopefully become good people will be, you know, the next challenge. So they're still <laughs> learning a lot but um, and we've still got a long way to go as parents but… That's probably the one thing I think, you know, if you can, um, you know, create that legacy where you've you've given them an opportunity at life, um, which our parents gave us, that's, it's nice to be a part of that cycle and hopefully do a good job of it. It's been a joy talking to you today. Um, I've known you for a, a long
1: time. It was I wasn't your fitness trainer. I gave you stuff to do and you just follow. It. You're, <laughs> you're a very, very good athlete to work with. I've learned a lot about you, actually especially deconstructing how you look at performance and breaking it down. So it's been a joy doing this. It's almost the push-up guarantee. You know, I get excited, I want to do push-ups. <laughs> so for people watching this, listening to this, who want to make contact with you, I don't think you have a real social media presence. So can anyone find you on social or do you, do you just sort of follow lie off there, off the radar no social contact
0: I'm old school I'd still use a carrier pigeon if I could <laughs> so there's no uh, yeah no Twitter no Facebook or anything like that I think you uh, know I actually love that yeah I, I, do, no, I, love I don't it. know it's different school. and I guess that's that's just how I am and I don't know whether I could handle the way things are now with social media and, and the way that is I I guess that's going to be a challenge with the kids growing up is how to deal with all that because no doubt they'll probably want to be on it because it's part of society I'm on you know.
1: Facebook group with family nothing social no nothing social. so no likes no you're just you're that calm you're that comfortable within your own skin you don't need other people to give you thumbs up what i
0: don't know doesn't hurt me and i'm sure there's negative stuff which i guess is a a byproduct of social media but in the end of the day i always think as a player even with the press you can waste negative energy on stuff that gets said about you which you can't control and unfortunately you can't please everyone in life so i think yeah I've, i've had that philosophy that you know, what I don't know doesn't hurt me, so watch you on Channel Seven or go to the local cricket nets because I
1: guarantee <laughs> you will be there doing throwdowns with some young boy or young girl who has aspirations to also represent their country. Simon, thank you. My pleasure. Cheers, mate. Yeah. Wizard Simon Cadic upon review. What what did you take out of
2: that? Yeah, I thought it was really fascinating. There's a there's a, a bit in, in the podcast where you talk to him about being analytical, and he talks about how he likes to yeah, break things down and just figure out where things came from, going step by step, and then you call him out on that probably a couple of minutes later on doing exactly that just in the podcast.
1: He didn't even realise he was doing it. He didn't
2: realise he was doing it, and then you called him out, and then another cool thing that I noticed, it doesn't happen very often, but he, when you started talking to him about that, he got on a roll about how he does things and why he enjoys doing that and you know, how he likes to be analytical like that, and I, he didn't stuff up his words or you know I I notice when people say I'm a lot I do it um, because I have to listen to it for when I'm editing and he just didn't he just went for about five minutes straight just on that I thought that was yeah he's obviously found something he loves.
1: I felt that at the time you could feel the energy emanating from him and he is articulate and he does a lot behind the scenes to prepare I think a lot of people don't realise When you watch people on TV, to get to that next level, there's a lot of preparation for that and I know he's applied the same format to his TV career and now he's coaching like he did when he was playing, all the preparation behind the scenes. Now I've known Caddo for years, uh, both when he was an athlete that I was working with and also known him socially. The big thing that I would say about Simon is it's around leadership and role modelling when no one is around. Is we talk about leadership a lot on this podcast. I think it's easy to, or it's easier to lead when there's people watching. There might be a live audience on TV or radio or a live crowd, and you do the right things when people are around. But what I've always loved about Simon, and and there's so many different stories, and only a few came through today, but he role models and leads when no one is watching. A couple of examples that popped out, like umpiring, that was hilarious when he sledged me. He's umpiring his kids' game, and Toby ran out on the field. I'm thinking, who's this? umpire. It's a, one of Australia's leading cricketers in the last decade. Also, when Mario said he was at the Nets and he looked up and Caddo was helping this random kid, in the interview we find out it was an aspiring New South Wales cricketer, and we asked him off-air, how many times have you done that? And he just had no idea. He does it all the time. Also, knowing Simon personally, he is down to earth. He's like that all the time. We have a dinner once a year where we catch up with a bunch of the cricket boys and it's Miley. Safraz, Paddy Farhart, Benny Ramalas, Sean Bradstreet, Matthew Nicholson, myself and Caddo. And he's the same now as he was all those years ago. And He always greets you, looks at you like, whiz, how are you going? He just treats everybody the same. And he gives back to the sport. You can hear throughout the interview, and you can just see this in his day-to-day demeanor, He got so much out of cricket and he's giving so much back and I love just hearing how he's used that to catapult himself to really having a global career in coaching and also in commentary.
2: Yeah and I think if I had to pick one thing that really stuck out out of this whole podcast was he seems like a perfect example of how to transition from one career to another. He's gone from playing cricket to head of football operations at the GWS Giants. I mean, they pretty much take place on the same sort of size field, but it's a completely different sport. But he's just gone straight in there in their first season. And then from there, he's gone into yeah, broadcast and coaching i know he's a bit reluctant to get into the coaching but it seems like he loves it now and yeah it just seems like no matter what he does he's he's well equipped himself to to move into those different areas and just succeed every time
1: and and wrapping up 100 episodes whiz that's a lot of editing that's a lot of recording in the studio that's a lot of time you you poor man listening to my voice What are two or three big takeouts or learnings you've had so far in the first 100? Because I'm loving this. Locked in the first 100. We're going to go now for the next 100. This is a big part of our lives.
2: And yeah, what have you taken out of it? Thanks for putting me on the spot like that. You know, I love doing that. Um, Like I'd say, if I had to pick, for me personally, I think growing in like technical skills, recording and editing podcasts, because when we started, I had no idea we were sort of just you were like hey we've got these microphones downstairs and
1: it was actually hey wizard we're going to do a podcast with nab they've signed us on for a series to do 30 episodes and you went have you done this before no we'll we'll work it out (laughs) we was we had no idea and i think having no idea can help because if we realized how much work it was to research and then come up with questions and then record the podcast and edit the podcast and amplify the podcast you would probably never start but having gone through that yeah, it's been a huge learning curve, especially for you.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think with anything like this, you just get thrown in the deep end and just go, hey, let's just do it because you can research it all you want. But unless you're actually hands-on doing it, you're probably not going to learn a whole lot, really. Um, and then I, I think the other thing I've learned is just when when we do programs with Strive Stronger or I hear you doing coaching sometimes in the background, I hear you talk about different skills or uh, choices that people can make that will help them improve themselves and then we'll get on the podcast and you'll have someone on who's you know the, the greatest CEO ever or something and they'll, you'll ask them you know what do you do and they'll say probably not word for word but almost the exact same thing that I hear in the programs and in the coaching and I it just in the back of my mind I'm like oh yeah that's pretty cool like it, it's it's Probably it's not an exact formula to succeed every single time at everything but I think it's definitely a really good first step to take some of those skills if you want to be a high performer and we've got tons of proof of that now.
1: Yeah, what we are going to start doing over the next couple of months is going back and looking over the 100 episodes and using AI, finding out what are the key messages, what are the key principles. I've, I think at the moment I know what they are. I'm interested when we see that data come back. What are the key themes? What are the key patterns? I think it's really cool right now at the stage, we've got enough backlog of content looking forward. We've got a lot of episodes already locked in for this semester and even next semester. It'll be really interesting to tease out what are those key messages. That's a wrap for the one hundredth episode, Wizard. Thank you. Been really been really reflective putting this bit together, thinking about where we've come from and there's plenty more left. Really excited about what we're doing and, and can't wait to keep banging out good episodes or hopefully great episodes.
2: Yeah, it should be good. I'm looking forward to the next hundred.